I tell you, Michelle, I'm really enjoying doing our podcast through Anchor. Yeah, it seems to be working really well. Yep. I mean, it, it's free. That's it, always good. Yeah. It's simple. Um, they give you creation tools that, that allows you to record and edit your podcast right on your phone or the computer. They distribute the podcast on Spotify and Apple and many other podchasers. You can make money with the podcast with minimum listenership. Awesome. Yep. Everything you need at one place. Cool. Yeah. And all you need to do is download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. Easy enough. Yeah, we've done it. Mm-hmm. Other so pod- you. Yeah. You're listening to Aww. Special episode. We're gonna get right to the chase. Um, we have Nick and Joey talking with us today about what the Bible actually says about hell. Do we burn forever? Do we get cast out in the outer darkness, or is it something different? Um, both Joey and Nick are active participants. Um, in Rethinking Hell. You can find out more about that at RethinkingHell.com and also the Rethinking Hell Facebook discussion group and page. Um, I will give show notes uh, for Nick's podcast, Synergist podcast, and the Split Frame of Reference podcast. The film that we're going to be tying this all in with it's called Hell and Mr. Fudge. It is on Amazon Prime. Very good movie. I definitely recommend you see it. So let's get on with this episode. Okay, everybody. We have uh, two guests today. This is an, uh, something new for us. Mm-hmm. To actually have guests. Not only one, but two. They can hear somebody other than me and you. Yeah. That's a the- good thing. Other side of the country. This is kind of like a, a setup for a joke. We've got a bug man, an actress, an accountant, and a pastor walking to a bar. And <laughs> <laughs> we've got uh, Joe Deere. Hey, hey. Hey, and Nick Quinn. How's it going, everyone? Yeah, and both are uh, pretty, uh, pretty well-known voices and on uh, Rethinking Hell. And, Nick, you have the Synergist podcast also, right? Yep, Synergist, spelled the center way. Yep, that's us. Right. And uh, you're also a beer connoisseur? I, I play one on TV, yes. <laughs> okay. And I said, uh, Joe, you're, 
you're an accountant by by trade, right? Yes, I am. All right. So, Michelle is a stay-at-home, homeschooling, working part-time from home actress. <laughs> <laughs> I wear many hats. And me, I'm a bugman in the prison. So that's what we do. And we're here to talk about something. We're talking about hell today. And it's something that I think even Christian, non-Christian, we're all kind of interested in in that topic. It always kind of comes up, whether it's what the Bible says about it, what pop culture says about it, what mythology says about it. I, I actually, I never really gave it much of a second thought, mm-hmm. um, either before I was a Christian or after I became a Christian. What actually made me start thinking about hell and rethinking hell before I knew there was a rethinking hell mm-hmm. was an atheist. Really? Hmm. I, I had an atheist. Um, I was on um, uh, the forum, I think it was called uh, Christians versus Atheists or, so, or something, something, something like yeah. that. Um, and I was talking to this one, uh, one gentleman, and he basically asked me what I believed about hell, and I went into what I thought I knew about it, and he said, well, you may want to read the Bible more. <laughs> And he kind of set up a challenge for me. And we had some pretty in-depth, like, long discussions. We, we were beyond uh, Facebook mm-hmm. uh, conversations at that point. It was like two, three-page emails <laughs> that we were sending back and forth. And that's what kind of started my walk into it. And I had actually been convinced of conditional immortality before I found Rethinking Hell and before I even knew what conditional immortality was. Right. And I had been, you know, I was raised non-practicing Catholic, so of course I had the default theory of, well, if you're bad, you go to hell, and if you're good, you go to heaven, and... Some might be somewhere in between in purgatory. Right. And, you know, if you have more checks in the good column than the bad column, then there you go. And, you know, I thought hell would burn them forever. And, and then I think... I know, started sharing with you what I was reading, you know, after I had taken the blinders off. I started sharing with you what I was reading, and right. you... Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> you, you kicked against the codes for quite a while. Yeah, for quite a bit. I mean, and I was also torn because, because I had also heard of, well, hell is the cold, damp separation in, in God's, you know, dank dungeon. And so I'm like, well, is it fire or is it darkness in the dungeon? And then I heard, well, the fire is symbolic. But either way, you're separated from God forever, and you don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, okay, I'm kind of confused, because is it hell? Is, is it fire? Is it dark? Is it... So it was confusing anyway, but I know I didn't want to go there, so you... Yeah, at that point, it almost you're doesn't mean to, much. You're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole with what you believe, and then you just... <laughs> Take it as you know what. If God said it, that settles it. 
I don't want to go to hell because I know the fire is not quenched and the worm doesn't die and all that. So that was pretty much where that came in. Do you guys want to go into a little bit of how you were introduced to CI? Hey Joey, you want to do? Uh, do you want to do rock paper scissors, Joey? Looks like we might have lost Joey. Oh, is Joey gone? Well, I can go if you guys want to figure that out. Will that work? Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Yeah. And so uh, I grew up in a Calvary Chapel movement, which, for those that don't know, is kind of like the Assemblies of God, but without the systematic theology and the tradition behind it. Mm-hmm. So. Very Pentecostal, very dispensational, very lots and lots of things. You know, just stuff that, you know, good people believe, but I never really bought into. Right. And so I grew up there, and hell, of course, is what you see in The Simpsons. It's a place where the devil pokes you with a stick, and it's everything's hot and fiery and stuff like that. And so um, I began to question this. I, it never sat well with me. Apparently, I asked a few questions to different youth pastors, and they really didn't like me too much for asking those kind of questions. Mm. But, excuse me, the uh, I ended up uh, eventually uh, taking... I think it was when Rob Bell's book came out, Love Wins, okay. that I really began to rethink a lot of what I was thinking, uh, what I had been taught, and all those sorts of things. And I, I actually ended up on universalism for about two or three months. Um, but what I knew about sec- when I started to read Second Temple Jewish literature and all these sorts of things, that kind of pulled me away from universalism. And the other option was conditional immortality or, or annihilationism. And between the three options, I basically was like, well, I was taught to read scripture a certain way. No matter how I read scripture, this seems to be the best option. Um, it's the option that makes best sense of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Second Temple Jewish literature, although Second Temple Jewish literature isn't unanimous on the subject, but there's certainly questions there. And so basically it was reading the New Testament in its Jewish context that I basically moved from my sort of soft universalism to conditional immortality. And uh, that happened, oh, I don't know when Love Wins came out, Love Wins. When did Love Wins come out? I'm curious. Uh, doesn't actually say where did the book see so you put in Love Wins and you get like a million different things. Let's see. Uh, Love Wins came out, I think it was like 2003, oh, 2011. Okay, so I, re- I began rethinking this about seven years ago, and so ultimately I ended up, um, yeah, and that's kind of where I settled ever since. I've written a few articles, did a few conference presentations on the subject. Uh, I've got a book coming out that in some sense, addresses the topic of conditional immortality. And I'm writing a exegetical and theological devotional on the book of Revelation. And that, of course, has its own eschatological uh, pitfalls and nuances. But that's basically kind of my story. Okay. Now, I guess maybe one thing we should get into, because we haven't um, really done that, Nick, would you like to go into what exactly conditional immortality is for any listeners who don't know? Sure. The the, the basic tenets are, I mean, the, you ask a bunch of different people, you'll get a bunch of different similar answers, but yeah, this is kind of, of yeah, th- this is how, how I kind of see it. Um, 
can uh and it's it's we start with what we might call the doctrine of god who is god what is god like and so on and so forth and we know from the new testament and uh the old testament that only god has what we might call mortality immortality and with this immortality is incorruptibility and all these sorts of things god is imperishable he can't be killed he can't be these sort you know those sorts of things and if you look around at material creation, as the psalmist does, as Paul does, as um, uh, the gospel, the writer of the Gospel of John does, and you begin to see that the world is not like God, at least in the sense of mortality and in terms of corruption and things falling apart. I mean, I'm 31. Uh, it seems like yesterday I was 18. And so those sorts of things. And so you get the sense that the belief that con conditional immortality in a nutshell is that God... Uh, is immortal, uh, has a certain creative character in making the world a certain way. And because of the fall of Adam and Eve and subsequently the rest of us, we are now in what we might call the curse of mortality. We, um, what, whatever we are as people, um, however you think of that anthropologically, whatever we are, we certainly die and we certainly uh, follow are, are, are mortable. We, we fall away from God and we are subject to lifelong slavery and the fear of death and so, such and such. And so conditional immortality basically asserts that because God is immortal and uh, immortality is itself a gift, something God has to bestow to people who respond to God, that means that humanity is not therefore mortal. And in the eschaton at the end of all things, or we might say the beginning of all things, uh, the only people who will be in uh, new creation with God forever are the people that have accepted the gift of Christ and therefore the gift of immortality and will live forever. Those who don't participate in Christ uh, will not live forever in any sense of the word of life and will, uh, well, as, as the book, as Genesis says, from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust. Okay. Okay. All right, so, all right, so then something like, I'll, I'll just get into it, one of, one of the biggest things that I've heard, and I used to throw at people, because this would be something sort of akin to what the Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses would be said to believe. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, um, annihilationism. Right. Which, so then the question is something like the story of the rich man and Lazarus and Luke, mm. where both are conscious after death. One is in a place of seemingly eternal torment and the other one is in Abraham's bosom. How does that fit in with the fact that only the righteous are, are said to be made immortal? Yeah, there, there's a lot of pieces to Luke 16 as a, as a proof text for whatever um, we're talking about. And the nice thing about Luke 16 uh, in the parable, is that there's no unanimous, you, there's no uh, unity of thought even amongst people who affirm what might be called the traditional doctrine of eternal torment. 
Uh, that is that human beings, contrary to immortality being conditional, are granted immortality forever, and, and it's just a place of location versus a place of uh, who's alive or not. Okay, so and basically, so, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. So basically, you're no, saying go you're going to live forever. What it's just whether you're going to be in heaven or hell. Is basically, that what you're... that's 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 the most common, and I think uh, the most. Yeah, it's the most normal view of the doctrine of uh, eternal torment, or the what I call the traditional view. I don't assume that people believe it because of tradition. It's just the traditional doctrine, so I just that's what I call it. Okay. So yes, I think that's absolutely right, Michelle. I think that's a really good point. Um, as for as for Luke sixteen, there are multiple ways to address it. I think my immediate response is one. I think it's very difficult to take a parable and extrapolate an entire doctrine from it because parables usually have a singular point that they're trying to that they're trying to make. So for example, Jesus makes the point of um of telling this story and uh, some people say for example because Lazarus is named uh that this is therefore a true story that is Jesus is telling you a true event. Um I I find that a little hard to believe uh, personally but I mean, that's to me, it's neither here nor there. It's just one of those things that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Because yeah, I, I hear it pushed all the time that there's a rule that a parable cannot have a proper, proper name in it. That That's one of the things that I do hear all the time. Yeah, and, and as far as I can tell, I, I, I went through seminary and I took a few classes on hermeneutics, and I never heard that rule, at least in, in any formal way in a book. And you, you have to read a lot of books that's one of the perks of seminaries you're forced to read a lot and i never heard that hermeneutical rule doesn't mean it's not true but i just never heard it and so nor have i yeah and i would add that um there's an, the parable of um you know the one where the guy is sort is storing up wheat to have for the rest of his life mm. and at the end god comes and says that um you know tonight you're going to die so you know you wasted your whole life on this wheat I mean, that, that parable has God himself in it. God's a person. God's an actual person, and there's many names for him, but God is one of them. So uh -huh. you, even there, you, you could argue that there's an example of a parable um, yeah. that has a you know, proper name in it. No, I think that's, I think that's, that's right. That's a real good point, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, La the rich man of Lazarus is the only, I mean, there's a, a symbol or there's a symbolic point to him being named Lazarus. I, I don't recall what his name means, but it has a very specific meaning. I think it's one whom God loves or some variant of that. And so there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very specific reason Jesus uses the name Lazarus. It's, it's not out of the blue. It doesn't, you know, it's like if you go to liturgy at a, at a high church place, everything in the service for right or wrong is focused on being thematically coherent and everything flows to it. Flows together, and so Lazarus makes complete sense. Yeah, it's like whom God serves or something, right? Yeah, someone like yeah. that. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, the uh, and I'm reading from I have the NIV in front of me. It's not my preferred translation because it's not my own translation, but we'll just roll with it. Um, <laughs> in Hades, oh, okay. uh, Lazarus is God has helped. Okay, God is whom God has helped. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and so you got this this story where. Uh, in Hades, and so, of course, my first thought in verse 23 is Hades is not the same as what people think of when they think of the doctrine of eternal torment. Hades in, uh, Gre in Greek thought and Greco-Roman literature has a very specific connotation that does you can't just take the word Hades and import it into New Testament thought. It's something that has a very distinct meaning. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and so that's kind of flag number one. 
And so he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. And so there's a weird notion of how does space work in Hades? And so then, of course, you get other questions of uh, have pity and send Lazarus to dip the finger, his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And so the whole point throughout Luke's gospel is the theme of what is called often eschatological reversal. The person who is wealthy in life, assume, you know, and Luke, Luke seems to assume that wealth in, in, uh, in Palestine is usually ill-gotten gains. It's not something you earned. It's something you took. And so that person is basically flipped. You'd think that person would be in the lap of luxury, but Jesus is essentially saying, no, that's not how the currency of God's kingdom works. And, of course, there's a great chasm set in place. Um, and it's weird that you have this event in Hades going on, but there's no one else there. So all we can, I mean, again, is this just the, the, the rich man in Hades? Is there no one else there? And so you just kind of begin to look and I go, this doesn't work as a parable, but the reason it doesn't really work, or rather it works as a parable, but it doesn't work as we might say a propositional form for us to kind of extract doctrine from because there's just too many pieces. And then you realize you're reading it wrong if you're focusing on the little pieces here. The whole point is the very end, he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. At the end of almost every parable, Jesus literally tells you what it means. It's the same sort of rhetoric that we find in the book of Revelation, if you know, and those sorts of things. When the author tells you what the author is intending to communicate, that's when you go, oh, so this isn't about heaven or hell. This is about people being hardened in disbelief and not even believing the great things in front of them. So oh. I'm, I'm not sure how much I mean, and Joey probably has a lot more to say on this than I do. But just as an additional thought, and Joey, I think you have really good thoughts on this one is at best this this parable, if we press it in the way that you shouldn't read parables, um, it, it shows that all we're talking about is the intermediate state because the resurrection clearly hasn't happened yet. So it leaves. So in terms of sequence and New Testament chronology regarding eschatology and all these sorts of things, you're kind of left going. This doesn't really fit any sort of scheme or model of how it works. Like if you look at how Paul talks about it in First Corinthians 15, it doesn't fit. In terms, if you think purely in terms of uh, wooden sequence, you know, and when you just go, oh, this is a parable, you skip to the end to find out what it means. And when Jesus tells you what it means, that's when you go, okay, now you read it in light of that, and you don't go. But this little detail here, it's like, no, you're you're missing the point. So that's that's kind of how I read it. And so that I don't see I don't see it really saying anything about hell at all. Okay, so, and that's one thing that I've heard about why this can't be a parable is because all the other parables, Jesus gives a, and this is what I've, you know, kickback I've heard, that Jesus explains the parables, and in this one he doesn't. But as you clearly have shown, he did. He yeah. did explain what the point of this parable was. Yeah, and we look at this in verse, uh, you, you have Father Abraham, Abraham's talking, um, and all these sorts of things, and Abraham tells him, uh, they have the they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to him. So it's not the, <laughs> just the end. He tells them flat out, you know, all this sort of stuff, and basically goes, if they, don't, if they won't listen to the history of how God has operated in the world through the law of Moses and the prophetic tradition, they're not going to be convinced even if I rise from the dead. And you're just kind of like, oh. This isn't about heaven or hell. This is about people being hardened and not recognizing what we might call God's activity in salvation history. 
Oh, definitely. Definitely agree with you all there on uh, pretty, pretty much all of that. I, I do wonder, though, about the claim about um, Jesus always explaining parables. I'm trying to think uh, in my head because I, I'm, sh- I'm almost positive that that's not even true. Like, right. that there are parables that aren't always explained. At least not oh, in sure, detail. Of course, of course. But in this one, it's one of the few that he does. I mean, there's we're going through Mark at, the Gospel of Mark at Church. And oftentimes you can see the point of it at the end, even if it's left unexplained. And sometimes Jesus, you know, or Mark, for example, does this kind of cheeky thing where it says Jesus took his disciples aside and explained it to him. And my first thought is, well, why the Hades didn't you tell us what Jesus told them? Because that'd be really nice to know. And so <laughs> even exactly. then, we do have Jesus kind of telling people, but he tells them and he doesn't tell while well, the people reading it. So, no, I agree with you, Troy, but I think it, for here, the fact that you have a parable and other parables that have that sort of thing is kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the punchline at the end, like, is one of the many reasons why I do think it's almost certainly a parable. I mean, I, I don't really think there's any good reason to think it's not a parable from beginning to end. For many of the reasons you cited, it just screams, this is a parable. Um, not the least of which is the fact that in the end, you basically have... The whole point of it summed up, you know, in uh, Abraham's point about someone not rising from the dead. And I mean, I I think we all know what that's alluding to. Um, Mm -hmm. That became especially clear, you know, within a few years when Jesus gave that. Right. Uh, Yeah. And and, and also, too, just before I forget, literally in the next chapter at the very beginning in chapter 17 after this, the first words Jesus said to his disciples, quote, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. So he's obviously making a, a point, but mm-hmm. woe to anyone through who, through whom they come. It'd be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. And so that you and this is the problem, of course, with a lot of modern translations. You stop reading at the end of the chapter, but often the story keeps going, or the echoes of the story keep going. Mm-hmm. And so right. basically, this is a call: watch yourselves. Don't be like the rich man. Okay. Oh. Wow. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if I've ever read that. Uh wrapped around like that. There was somebody that was actually talking to, uh, going back to um, something we may have talked before we actually started recording, was um, a lot of the discussions I have on Crosswalk um, on Facebook. And one of them, this last two days, was specifically about uh, this this parable. And gentleman was trying to explain to me why it can't be a parable. And it was along with the use of the name Uh, Lazarus they said he was talking about how all other parables or all all parables because he didn't consider this one to be one so it can't be an other but all parables talk about real life um, experiences or or commonplace themes like building a house um, the reaping and sowing of, of tangible yeah tan things symbols. that they, they that anybody would be familiar with uh the bartering system harvest time all those types of things and he was trying to say that because this brought in subject matter that they would not have been familiar with as far as the the Hades and the Abraham's bosom, that that's why this has to be a true teaching of of a true um, nature, because it doesn't, it talks about something that they would not have had experience in themselves. What would, what would you guys say to that in response to that? 
Well, as far as that goes, there's there's reason to think, I believe, that they would have been familiar with these concepts. Obviously, they wouldn't have had hands-on experience with them because they're in the living world. But um, there's, uh, from what I understand, actually more than one story, but one story in particular, it's it's a uh, sort of a fable, as it were, that existed. It likely existed around the time. It was in the Talmud. Um, it's the story of Barmajan. And this story, it's always impossible to date it precisely because, you know, we don't have the written Talmud till after this point, but the Talmud records, you know, oral tradition. But there's good reason to believe that this story existed at the time, among others. And what we have in this story is essentially a sort of intertestamental, sort of Hellenistic, Hellenized Jewish idea of um, some form of afterlife. In which, um, uh, if I recall correctly, I just want to double check here. But Barmajan, yes, he was the tax collector, which, of course, in that period was a bad thing because tax collectors, and I don't just mean this in a libertarian sense, but I mean they were often, you know, overt thieves, you know, right. even to the extent they were authorized, told by the government to collect the tax owed, you know, whatever, a thousand shekels. They would, ex- they would order the person to pay 2,000, keep the other 1,000. Like, they were, they were synonymous with literal criminals. Right. And um, in this story, you know, this Barmajan, he's very rich from all this thievery. You know, like Nick was talking about, a lot of wealth came from thievery, and this was a key example. Um, that's why the Bible, the New Testament Gospels, talks about tax collectors so negatively. Then they're usually among the rich um, that are spoken of. Um, you know, he was very rich, had a very opulent funeral. And meanwhile, the friend of the narrator is a teacher of the law, you know, was supposed to be one of the good guys in this context. He was poor, didn't have nearly the great funeral and everything. But in the afterlife, they're flipped. And in the afterlife, you have Barmajan, and he's stuck in a situation kind of like um, uh, Tantalus in the Greek mythology, where he's dying of thirst. Well, he doesn't really die, but he's very thirsty, and there's water, and he can't get to it. Um, and meanwhile, um, you have the, t- the teacher of the law in a much more um, pleasant state, like Abraham's bosom. And so one idea that you know, has been thrown about by a lot of scholars going back to the 1600s, I, I recall, um, is that this particular story, and ones like them, like this whole idea wasn't that unique in the literature of the time. This story could be what Jesus is drawing on. If he is, and I think it is at least reasonable, he would be drawing basically on this common story, this common fable, this common idea, uh, except flipping it. Because, you know, the rich man, you know, in this context isn't, you know, said to be any sort of sinner. He's not the tax collector. Um, And, you know, the people he's speaking to among the Pharisees, there was likely some rich people among them as well. And he's basically saying that this person who seems like he was favored by God wasn't. And meanwhile, the poor beggar who's supposed to have been cursed by God, well, like I say, the name says itself, he's the one God helps. And so in that case, it's it's entirely possible that Jesus is just appealing to a parable, much like, you know, in TV shows, it's not uncommon for us to hear TV characters appeal to other TV shows or books to make a point. Um, maybe something like that. He would be appealing not to a tangible experience, per se, but to common ideas and fables and to then turning them on their heads. And that would make sense um, in a parable like this. 
It's not the only option, but it's one that would be reasonable. I mean, it sounds to me like that's something that, you know, reading a lot of what Jesus taught and how he taught, that seems very reasonable that he would do something like that. Because hmm. um, one, and one, I, you had mentioned something and it just kind of uh, slipped out of my head again. Um, can't recall it now. That's all right. If it comes to you, we'll because uh, <laughs> uh, I know when I first started, you know, studying into into uh, this passage, because of course it's the one that seems to come up the most as as to why conditional immortality can't be, you know, can't be scriptural. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I when I was studying into it, I I always found the connection between um, Lazarus or Eleazar and Abraham to be quite powerful. The fact that um, Eleazar was the name of Abraham's chief servant. Oh, that that does make a lot of sense. Tie that in there. Since we are talking about Abraham's bosom, Mm. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, this Lazarus, this, you know, which I believe is just the Greek version of Eleazar being the right. one who goes to Abraham's bosom in the parable. Right. Yeah, because when I had done the research into that, that, that kind of struck me. And I believe I had heard somewhere, I, I can't recall where it was, that before Abraham had had any children, that his, his estate would have gone to the chief of his servants. Hmm. And that kind of draws the whole parallel between, you know, being the literal father um, of the Jews to also being the father of the Gentile by proxy. Hmm. That's interesting. And that, that's kind of, that kind of what locks it in for me as it being a parable and why Jesus would choose to give a proper name. Mm-hmm. Because the name itself brings part of the lesson. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Definitely makes sense. I would like to underline something about what I said and what you just said, Michelle, and everything. Like This all to us 2,000 years later sounds very scholarly and stuff you have to read a lot into and stuff that maybe a lot of people you know, before the printing press and before the internet now might not have had access to. But these things would have been a lot more normal and common knowledge among the actual audience Jesus was talking to 2,000 years ago. Especially among Pharisees and the learned Jews that were in that group he was talking to in that context. So you're saying context counts, then? (laughs) Exactly. Oh, oh, oh. fine. It's kind of important, a little bit, a little bit. And I did kind of remember, and I just slipped out again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, okay, You, you convinced me that it may be a parallel. Okay, but my problem now is we have, I'm going to jump to Matthew 25, where Jesus is, uh, says, you know, where the Son of Man is going to separate the, uh, the sheep from the goats, and clearly at the end, it says they will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So if eternal life is forever, surely that punishment has got to be forever too. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's actually accurate. So then hell is forever. It has an everlasting effect, yeah. In the same way a lot of or rather it has an everlasting everlasting effect. Um, for example, in Matthew 25, 46, uh, when we look at the Greek version of the Old Testament to see how that word punishment is used, mm-hmm. uh, it can be used, I mean, I, I, I did a study on this a while back, but it, it's a pretty broad and nonspecific category. And so, for example, you have punishment of the unjust or the unrighteous in Ezekiel 14. But it's never actually described as death or pain or torment or anything. It's just the punishment. There's nothing in the context to really suggest it. But later on in Ezra, or Ezekiel, not Ezra, wow, Ezekiel 14, um, you have the language of destruction or disappearance or vanishing in chapter 14 and uh, 14, I think it's verse 8 and verse 15, where the use of swords suggests that the uses of the verb or the word for punishment means something perhaps like punishment by death. Um, there, and so the question, of course, as we, as we read Matthew is going, what does punishment actually mean? And when we look at the Septuagint, uh, the, that Greek version, there's very little evidence where it's actually used in the sense of incarceration, uh, like what the traditional doctrine seems to kind of intimate that people are imprisoned or kept alive forever and ever. Although you do have certain uses of it in the new Testament, but, uh, Again, you have this variegated use where you have um, uh, Colossan is the noun, and you have it used in multiple contexts in multiple ways, and there's nothing within Matthew 25, 46 that pushes me to go, it, it means either thing. It just means punishment, and in my mind, the death penalty is certainly a horrific punishment. Um, and so I, I, I kind of look at Matthew 25, 46 going like, it doesn't prove my case, but on the flip side, I don't think it proves the case for the doctrine of eternal torment, because I would expect that punishment, whatever it is, would be explained as, for example, the persistence of life forever and ever with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And perhaps, you know, also the notion of pain, as in uh, Judith, uh, the end of Judith, where God inserts worms and fire into people's flesh and stuff like that. So for here, with Matthew 25, 46, my, I just kind of look at it and go, it can't be a proof text for the traditional doctrine of eternal conscious torment because Colossian itself is never used in that sort of context that I can see in the Jewish literature. If it is, it's, it would be used this way and only this way in Matthew 25, 46. What I do think Matthew 25, 46 rules out is universalism because Colossian, it is often alleged, means a corrective kind of thing or a pruning thing, but that's from a different time of greek literature several hundred years way before uh and it just colossin is never used in that sense in a pruning sense or a purgatorial sense so in my mind i'm willing to agree with the traditionalists that yes it means an eternal punishment but the context doesn't tell us what that eternal punishment actually is and so in my mind the case is indeterminate with that we would have to go to other texts um, to make that case. And I'm willing to do that, but my response basically to them is it doesn't prove what you think, seem to think it proves. Just because it uses the phrase eternal punishment, unless you assume eternal punishment is eternal conscious torment, we can't really have that dialogue. You know what I mean? So we, we would basically need to put our, our assumptions on the table and have that conversation before we can actually exegete the text. But I don't think the Septuagint use or Jewish use 
renders itself decisively either way. So I'm willing to say I, I'm willing to say it's it's ambiguous and just kind of leave it there. Although I don't know if Joey agrees. Uh, Joey, what do you think? I, I think I largely agree there. Um, and I think what, what you did, Nick, is important to set the stage that, especially for those who maybe aren't as familiar with these things, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek. You know, what what we believe as Christians is the, you know, inspired text from God is in ancient Greek. So when, when Nick's talking about its Greek usage, the word Colossus and stuff, that's very relevant because that's ultimately what the text is saying. Like when we're reading Eternal Punishment, that's a translation, you know, from, well, depending on the translation, well over a millennia, whatever the case, later, you know. So that's always important to kind of establish sometimes that especially when you're dealing with like a specific word or phrase that that specific word or phrase in English does, you know, more or less mean what it sounds like in English. And in this case it does. I mean, the, the idea is basically in English punishment. is a fairly, you know, it has a lot of different, you know, ways that it could manifest itself. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, one thing versus the other. I mean, it, you know, for example, the death penalty, capital punishment is punishment, you know, physical pain, infliction of that's punishment, uh, there are various forms of punishment. The, the word itself doesn't define what's going on there. And so it's, it's important to note, like Nick did, that the underlying Greek is, is along the same lines. It, it does help, especially that you have in the Septuagint, which, for those who don't know, is the um, it's basically a Greek translation of the Old Testament from around the second century. Um, you know, so it's basic. It's very well known and respected, and it gives a good glimpse of what Greek words in the New Testament would mean because it's Greek words that were used around that same time. Um, so all that to say, the reason eternal punishment in English or in the original Greek doesn't necessarily mean eternal torment is because punishment is so broad, and the death penalty, capital punishment, is a type of punishment. That's why it has punishment in the name and um i I think it's worth appealing to a couple other scriptures one um double check here it's hebrews 6 i want to say verse 2 uh let me double check here what i'm basically just going to describe in a moment is that there are instances in the new testament where that are very similar where you have nouns of action like punishment um qualified as eternal but what's not eternal what's eternal is not the action what's eternal is the result the idea being that yes it may be that at one point god punishes the person by executing them by you know imposing the second death by for lack of a better word annihilating them but that does not mean that god is actively punishing them throughout eternity the punishment, the, the act of punishing takes place. The punishment itself is the result. And, and I was right, it was Hebrews 6 2, where uh, you know, the author describes eternal judgment. Well, he doesn't describe it very much. He mentions eternal judgment. And um, if you think about it, you know, when the end times come, it's not as though God is going to be in the act of judging throughout eternity, as though. You know, every there's a finite number of people, you know, maybe 100 billion people in total, as if they just keep coming before him over and over again. And he bangs the gavel, sends them away and they come back because they have to do it again and again if he's judging throughout eternity. Obviously, that's not what's happening when it says eternal judgment. What it's saying is that God judges the results of him judging the judgment 
is what lasts for eternity. And whether that's, you know, annihilation or eternal torment or on the other side of things, eternal life with God, the act of judging takes place once. The judgment is what is qualified as eternal, and that's the result of it. So in the terms of eternal punishment, if God executes the wicked, he punishes them with annihilation, the punishment of being dead, of being gone, of being annihilated, not having eternal life, lasts for eternity. And that's why annihilation can be called eternal punishment. And you also have the, this, this Colossian noun. Um, and it's important to make a distinction between how nouns work and how... And, and there is such a thing as a, a noun of action. But it is worthwhile pointing out that the ver- that the the word for punishment is not a is not a a, a, na- a verb. It is a noun, so it's right. describing something, and so it's not saying God is punishing. And you know, so it, there is a, a point just uh, in terms of uh, grammar. There, um, there's also something to be mentioned about how other Jewish literature uses the word. So, for example, in Second Maccabees four, um, which is uh, story of the Jewish revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, probably about 200 years, uh, less than probably like 160 years before the time of Jesus or before Jesus was born. You have um, this response where inflamed, and I'll read it, um, inflamed with anger, he stripped off the purple robe from Andronicus, tore off his clothes, and led him through the whole city to that very place where he had committed the outrage against Onias, and there he dispatched or killed the bloodthirsty fellow. The Lord thus repaid him with the punishment he deserved. So punishment, you know, this word can certainly be used in the context of violence or capital punishment. Um, And so for me, it's like, that gives me a bit of what gives us all a bit of wiggle room to kind of go, well, if it's used in the context often of death or destruction or what have you, or a war context, then my response is, well, this is good, and this pushes us towards maybe a 60-40 view, but it doesn't push us towards a non-ambiguous view, and I, for the life of me, don't know why people run to Matthew 25-46 to prove something when the verb itself, or the, rather the noun itself, is so imprecise, and I suspect intentionally so. Okay. Oh. So with, with that, what would be a verse that you would run to to prove your where your stance? What what is your go-to verse on that? It's probably the two verses we all remember if we grew up in the church, it's the two verses we memorized as kids, John 3:16 and Romans 6:23. The first one being uh, for God so loved the world that he sent or gave his only begotten son so that whoever uh, exercises faith or has faith in him will have eternal life. Um, so the contrast in John 3.16 is between perishing, that the people might not perish or die or be destroyed or what have you, but that they might be that they might live. And of course, of course Romans 6.23 is uh, something you see on the back of every uh, gospel tract is the, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And so uh, if you want to talk about parallels, a lot of people make a big deal out of Matthew twenty five forty six and the parallel between eternal life and eternal punishment. My response here is, yeah, I'm all about parallels. When I see perish or death pe- constantly contrasted with destroy, or rather with, with life, or in instance, some instances eternal life, my response is, well, if this language is used in the same way, basically, if you want to actually show what Scripture says about something, you go to where a word is used in a specific context and, and actually like explained in the sense of what it means. So for example, 
when you say for the wages of sin is death, it's like, okay, is this ordinary death? It's like, or eschatological death. Um, in Romans, uh, the epistles of the Romans, death always has the function of whether used metaphorically or we might say biologically, you know, death is the destruction or the, de or the cessation of physical life or biological life. Whatever, however it's used metaphorically or we might say woodenly, it still maintains that notion. And so death is something that is contrasted with eternal life. And made a, it, Paul makes a big stink about this because death is something that exercises dominion in Romans 5 and is something that reigns or you know, has authority over people. But this is also, this death is also something that is destroyed and put out, put away and crushed and all this sort of stuff in, in Romans uh, 5 and also 1 Corinthians 15. And so my thought is when I see death paired up in contrast with life, in some cases eternal life, my first thought is, I don't know what else is clear about this in terms of context, and in terms of modern linguistics, in terms of how Jewish people at that time understood the parallel or the antithesis between life and death. Um, to me, those two things, when I learned them in Sunday school, ironically, at Calvary Chapel, are some of the clearest texts, I think, because they don't require any sort of, we might say, spiritualization to understand what they mean. Paul use, Paul tells us what they mean. Right, and I, I'm, you know, I've asked people before, going because I, I use the same verses a lot um, when talking about it, and I've asked them before, what does it mean to perish? And I, I usually don't get very good answers. I get a lot of uh, hemming and hawing about what it is. And one of the things you were talking about with um, as far as how um, Jewish culture would have understood it, one of my favorite versions that, that I love to read is the Complete Jewish Bible. And I love the way that they actually, uh, that it actually has John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only and unique son, so that everyone who trusts in him may have eternal life instead of being utterly destroyed. Nice. Yeah, that sounds pretty... I mean, when, when you see John, you, the Gospel of John, using death and life over and over and over, there's, of course, nuances to it. There are, of course, reasons why it's used in a certain way. But at the end of the day, you look at how this all is used, and very rarely is it spiritualized to the point where it means something like separation from God. I mean, Joey can back me up on this. There is a debate I had with Chris, or Chris, and, Chris Dayton and I had a debate on this subject. And basically, the uh, gentleman we were debating basically argued over and over that death means separation. And my response is kind of like, no, death means death, the cessation of bodily life. And I think what has happened in uh, a lot of circles is that there's one, an assumption that language carries with it something that was something that has been configured recently. I mean, death has never meant separation. And also, the failure to treat words seriously. And so when you see words used in certain contexts over and over and over again, suddenly we posit, you know, expanded semantic ranges. Or, you know, for example, the word can mean 10 different things, so we get to just select whichever one we want. No, you, you look at how this word has been used and the context of it. And so what I see a lot is... Uh, in this conversation is the assumption that words mean certain things in certain ways and only can mean these things. It's like saying dog means um, disgusting person. It's like, no, dog means a four-legged thing 
with ears and eyes and teeth that usually plays fetch and eats a lot and poops in your yard. You know, it's like, so dog doesn't mean like bad person, you know, because you say, oh, that guy's a dog. It's like, well, no, that's not its common usage. And no one really thinks like that. We all know what a dog is. And so I'm just kind of, I've noticed this within the church. It's kind of, it's, it's certain words that get used very easily. It's like saying spiritual. It's like, well, what does that even mean? Or what does, you know, when you say stuff like eschatological, it's like, well, I mean, I know I said it earlier, but, you know, it's within a certain certain context. But yeah, certain words get used over and over and over without any notion of why they're being used. And so when you come to really basic words like death or life, a lot of people already have a spiritualized or a a almost mystical understanding of this word without having done the research of stopping and going, what does this word mean on its own terms versus what I bring to this word? Well, okay, I'm glad you brought that up then, because then let me throw this at you. Um, in Genesis 2, um, on verse 16, and the uh, Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. We have an on the day, a certain, and a die. So if words mean things, how does that work out? Uh, one, I'm looking at the NIV, and that's not, of course, the greatest translation, but I don't see on the day there. I'd have to look at a different translation. Uh, Joey, you've done work in Genesis. Do you want to take over uh, while I look for a different word or a different reading, version? I'm reading from the Holman just, to, just for oh, clarification okay. purposes. Hey, Joe, you want to take over while I look up a different translation? Yes, no problem. So uh, a couple things happen with um, the Genesis passage. And um, I guess to, to start, one thing I would point out is with words having their meanings and so forth, with that passage, there's no actual way that any group can take it entirely at face value. See, nobody has that you know advantage to their case um, because... It taken at face value, at least in the translations as such, um, with that sort of focus more on the on that day, and I think even that part's controversial. I think Nick will get into that in a little bit once he looks that up. But let's just say it says on that day you shall die. Well, nobody can take that passage at face value because at face value we would have expected Adam and Eve to die the very day they ate from the tree. That's the face value rendering. Neither traditionalists nor conditionalists can. We have to figure out what happened there. And, and for that reason, I'll throw out that I have heard um, skeptics try to argue that, therefore, you know, Christianity is false because it didn't happen on that day. As if the writer of Genesis, who in the next chapter explains what happened, just completely missed that point. I mean, come on now. Um, this is kind of an aside. It always bugs me when people say the Bible's false because something is written you know, in the same book, sometimes like in the same chapter, and like, yes, that contradicts itself. Like, you, you think you really think the guy missed that in the same page, the same scroll? I mean, what we have here then is we one of a couple things is happening. Either death takes on a completely new meaning that nowhere in the Bible or anywhere else really is ever actually explained. It's never actually laid out that true like death. Yes, exactly. Like, if you think about it, where in the Bible is that definition ever given? Where is it ever sort of laid out that this is this new meaning of death? The closest well, right thing to up. a definition was that. It's right there, obviously. 
Right. Well, that, this is the closest thing to a definition because I, at least a traditionalist can say they can look and say, well, Adam and Eve didn't die, so death must mean something different in the Bible. And then they'll say, well, that must mean separation because they were kicked out of the garden. A couple things, a couple issues are there. One, a number of things happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned. That wasn't the only thing. So to say that, therefore, that is what death is symbolic of is still an assumption. Like, it, you know, because they also, I mean, what else happened? They, you know, they, they had more uh, work and and less, you know, joy in life. You know, they had to, you know, eat by the sweat of their brow. They had to work for everything in ways they didn't before. You know, labor pains for Eve increased or possibly started for the first time. You know, that, you know, the whole fact that li- giving birth is such a terrible you know, experience right now is attributed to what happened there. Um, and also, by the way, they didn't drop dead that day, but they did begin the uh, descent into mortality. And that's that's the sort of second interpretation that I think is more reasonable. And a lot of traditionalists take this view, too. It's not by any means universal among traditionalists, the belief that um, when God's told Adam he would die that day, that he meant spiritual death, which means separation, which is never laid out anywhere in Scripture. A lot of traditionalists reason likewise, that when, he, when God said they would die that day, or they would die at that time, when Nick gets back with that, um, that God was basically saying that is the day that they would enter into death. Because until that point, they had access to the tree of life. They were not doomed to ever physically die. They, you know, whether or not they or their bodies were truly immortal or they had to eat from this tree or what have you, there's debate about those little specifics. Because I, I will say, in the whole Adam and Eve narrative, there are quite a few things that aren't really explained explicitly that we kind of have to fill in the blanks on. But whatever the case there, when they ate of that tree, they were barred from the tree of life and they were then condemned to die. And in fact, here's the thing about this. One of the many reasons, I could go into a lot of reasons, why I don't buy into the death equals separation from God in Genesis 2.17. One of the big reasons is that when God is basically pronouncing the sentences on Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, at no point does he remind Adam, at no point is he like, remember I said you would die? Well, that's true because you're going to be separated from me. But one thing God does specifically bring up at the end of the list of all the bad things is that, you know, they would physically die. You know, from dust they were taken, from dust they would return. Okay. So it would seem odd to me oh, for God to... What's up? Yeah, okay. Yeah. We're just being enlightened. <laughs> Very good. Because, no. I mean, it would seem quite odd to me for God to bring up everything except the very thing he threatened. Right. So at no point, because the separation happens later when God's pronouncing all these sentences, he doesn't even bring up and you'll be separated from me and kicked out of the garden. What he brings up, though, is physical death. And so it seems to me that that seems much more reasonable and appropriate for God to hearken back to what he said and bring up there because the sep- and here's one more thing about the separation angle. When they're sep- they're not just separated from God in some loose experiential sense. They're kicked out of the garden. And we see in Gen- at the end of Genesis 3, specifically, God makes sure that they're kicked out of the garden specifically so that they cannot get to the tree of life and live forever. 
Like that's explicitly mentioned in verses 23 through 20, 22 to 30, 22 through 24. Uh, I got it all there. So he specifically says God wanted to make sure they could not access the tree of life. So their separation from him, the so-called spiritual death, is what led directly into their physical death. Right. And that's it. And that's if you accept the, the idea of spiritual death as well. If right. and the two aren't necessarily uh, different, but I was I, I got a chance to finally look at the Hebrew. My my monitor was like, oh, heck no. Um, what I found what and, and the, the thing, too, that and this is something to think about, too, is I, I was and this is just kind of my angle on it. Um, I was uh, I did my undergrad graduate work in screenwriting, but I did my master's in, in uh, New Testament studies. And reading Genesis 1 through 3, my first thought is, do we expect the people that have been eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the, all, you know, the tree of life and all these sorts of things to suddenly drop dead? Well, it's like, no, they clearly—and I, I call it basically the reticence of immortality. So, and of course, in my mind, how do people keep on living over, you know, for you know, 900 years, 1,000 years, 700 years, and so on and so forth uh, in, in those you know, wonderful genealogies that we all skip— my first thought, and when I had this thought as a kid, and I think it's actually quite interesting, is that the reticence of immortality lingered on and didn't fully get removed until, you know, it had basically died out. And so what happens is you have the people that eat the fruit, that eat the apricot or the apple or whatever it is, and then they're expulsed, and it's not as if they drop dead because God still, of course, prefers—and I'm not even convinced the idea of separation is present because God still is with them and still talking to them throughout the entire process. Uh, yeah, right. I brought and, that up to several people, too. Yeah, I'd like, long for the separation that they had. Yeah, <laughs> and, you look, and, and you look at this, and it's like these people—and God is continually doing all this stuff. You know, you have the Ten Commandments, you have Moses, you have burning bushes, you have Red Seas— and you just kind of look at it and go, there's really no need to posit the idea of separation here, simply because, one, I don't see it in the text. What I see is the removal of life from creatures that were imbibing from a tree of life and are now uh, barred from eating from that tree and thus partaking in, we might say, um, uh, immortal life, however we define that. But at the end of the day these people were granted something and God takes it away. And the reticence of that or the echoes of that, or however we frame that is still there. It's not as if they immediately lost everything. It's like, no, what happened happened for some time and it still stuck with them. And that's probably a sign of God's, of course, grace and mercy that he didn't just go, Oh, you planned on living this entire life. You had all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. So now you're only going to live 20 years because life expectancy in the ancient world was not 900 years. And so, uh, I just kind of look at it and go, God didn't separate himself from them. In fact, God stayed pretty mm -hmm. close to them. I mean, he's talking to Eve. He's talking to Adam. He's talking to Cain after he killed Abel. Like the first murder, and God's still talking to the guy. So, I mean, talk about separation, right? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, see, I'm going to go back to the um, the CJB for just a minute, because uh, I like the way that it words this one as well. Uh, so I'll read from it. It says, Adonai, God, gave the person this order. You may freely eat from every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat from it, because on the day that you eat from it, it will become certain that you will die. So even there, it's not saying that you're going to die on that day. It's just on the day that you eat, you're ensuring the certainty that you will die. So I think that's pretty much summing up what you just said. 
Well, and you also have the language of in, in Hebrew there. Um, of course, I don't want to get in debate about days or anything, but uh, the de- the notion of day there can also mean lifetime. <laughs> it can also have you know like length of days or or something like that. And so there is that possible nuance as well that um, on on this on the day that you eat it, your life or your lifetime is certain. Versus you eat from the tree and your life is certain because you're with God and you're immortal and incorruptible and not subject to death and sin. But the instant you eat from that, your your life becomes a lifetime. It becomes short and it becomes subject to the things that God was trying to keep away from them. Okay. Well, and kind of keeping on the same vein, can we jump to Ephesians 2, 1? Because this is one that I hear all the time used to show that death um, is a spiritual death. Um you used to be dead because of your sins and acts of disobedience. I hear that one a lot to show that it's a spiritual death and not a physical death. They're, they're reading the word, the word dead there as literal and not figurative. Well, for me in that verse, that verse to me is basically, I believe that verse to be essentially very similar to what we have in Genesis, but easier and simpler because... Um, uh, well, I think what we have in that passage is a, uh, is a t- very common figure of speech called prolepsis. Um, and I want to underline, like I did before, and this applies to Genesis, this applies here, in a lot of these cases, it, what we're talking about, there's a lot to it, it gets kind of complicated in times, but remember, neither side is able to actually take these passages of face value. It's not like we're the complex ones who have to make everything all muddy, and they're the ones who are just taking the Bible at its word. Although sometimes the Bible can be complicated, even if it sounds clear. But this t- these situations aren't even where they sound clear. We all have to come up with explanations for why it sounds like something it's not. Because if you took this passage of face value, it would indicate that the, that the Ephesians were literally dead, and that they rose out of the ground or something like that. Like, that's the face value reading. So... Neither the traditionalist nor the annihilationist or universalist takes this at face value. Where we differ is in this. The traditionalist says that what is not literal is death. That is to say, they think that death doesn't mean what we normally think death means, that it means separation from God. Again, a definition that's not actually in the Bible anywhere. So that's the thing. They're reading that definition to this passage. You could not read that this passage in a vacuum and just think, oh, they were dead. That must mean they were conscious but separated from God. Like that's that's a theological construct they have to read into the passage. Right. I mean, I had a week. I was it a week or almost two week long conversation with one person um, close to a year ago now, mm-hmm. where they argued consistently that what this verse is saying is that there was a literal part. Of this, of each of us, that was literally dead. Even though we were up and walking and conscious, there was a part of us that was literally dead before before we came to Christ. I mean, even that's not taking it at face value because at face value it says you were dead, not just a part of you was dead while the rest was alive. Like, you know, and that doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Although that particular interpretation sounds completely baseless. But that's that's not that's not face value. That's not simple and straightforward. Like that's just and again, that just sounds baseless. I can't believe that actually happened. Yeah, it was a week long yeah. conversation with with one gentleman, and he just he would not 
no matter what I, no matter how I tried to explain it to him, and he kept coming back. I eventually had to stop because he got into calling me names. But that's. <laughs> that, yeah, that means not, you won the argument. If they resort to name calling, that means you win. So that's true. <laughs> but uh, but I met. Oh yeah, prolepsis. Because I mentioned that I threw that word out there in case anyone doesn't know what that means. Really? Um, prole- what's what? Hey. Okay, so <laughs> prolepsis is a figure of speech. That basically it take it speaks of a future state as a current reality, and um, we see it a lot in the Bible. We hear it in in our daily lives as well. Uh, for some reason, I don't know if this is how it is or if this I just notice it because of this topic. A lot of times it, it comes into play when we talk about death. For example, if somebody's on death row, they're clearly alive. They're walking. They're breathing. They're being walked to the gallows, which implies they're alive because they're walking to. The- gallows um you know and people cry out dead man walking that's prolepsis the person's not dead they're on their way to death and so that future state is spoken of as a current reality they're not actually dead and we see this in scripture here we see it in other places um, i would argue that second timothy 1:10 is an example where it talks about how jesus destroyed or abolished death i'm like well, I mean, if people are still dying in every sense, how can it be he abolished death? Well, on the cross, he did what needs to be done such that as soon as God's ready to pull the trigger, there will be no more death. So it affirms this future state with a state of certainty by saying it already happened. And I yeah, think that's it, what's it's like rolling a snowball down down a hill. It's like it's rolling. It hasn't reached the bottom yet, but it's picking up speed and it's getting bigger. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think a, a lot of these maybe most of these cases, I would argue, can easily just be explained as prolepsis. And there, and then you don't have to change the definition of death. None of these words have to take a new definition. You just say, oh, it's a common figure of speech, like dead man walking, or you know, situations like that. And I, I'm not the only person to point this out. Conditionalists aren't the only people to point this out. I mean, prolepsis is, you know, it's a, I mean, it's not a, that common word. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's there. And um, I've seen theologians discuss it in other contexts when appropriate. So, yeah, a lot of times you can see that there. And then, um, you know, it talks about made alive. You know, they were already physically alive, so in a sense they were already there. But when it talks about being made alive, it's talking about how they will have eternal life in the age to come. They were going to be dead. They were heading towards death. But now they will live. And that's the thing about prolepsis. It, ex- it has a sense of certainty to it, but it's not absolute certainty. Because there are instances where prolepsis is used of things that at that point were going to happen and then were changed. For example, Genesis um, 23, Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, we have King, uh, I, I'm not going to try the name, I'm going I'm to try the name Abimelech. We'll call him King Abimelech. He was one of the guys who Abraham basically fooled into marrying his wife. God comes to in a dream, says, you're a dead man for taking this man's wife. And he, of course, is like, I didn't know she was married. And God's like, I know, that's why I'm coming to you in this dream. Leave her. And he does. And he doesn't die as a result. So we have cases here, like with the Ephesians, where, yes, God himself said to King Abimelech, um, you will die. You know, you're a dead man, even though he was alive. And then by because Abimelech changed his behavior, you know, he did what needed to be done, what God asked of him. Well, then he didn't even die. Just like with the Ephesians, they were they were headed towards death. Uh, it didn't actually happen, and um, 
so that's kind of what happens here. Um, would that, and, could you say that that's similar in vain to the now but not yet concept? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's along the same. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think with uh, prolepsis, it's a little more black and white, where it's just this thing hasn't actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes when people talk about now and not yet, they sort of try to have this thing where it's happened but hasn't happened in some sense, but. That's not to say that prolepsis doesn't have a gray area, too, where you might have the thing hasn't fully happened, but certain um, elements have come into play. So I guess in a sense, yeah, it's very much the um, now and not yet idea as well. Okay. Well, all right. Um, Mark 9, there's several places uh, that talk about you know, the unquenchable fire, uh, where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Um, there's a lot of, you know, eternality speak there about fire. And, and that seems to be a, looking at it, just looking at it, seems to talk about eternal fire that, you know, that people are cast into. What am I missing here? That is a good question. Um, with those passages, those are that the Mark 9 is one of several. Um, and this is kind of a key thing um, that comes up with a lot of the main proof texts, not all of them, but maybe at least half of them. Um, they sound like one thing when you take them in a vacuum. When you look at their Old Testament background of the similar language, or in this case, as we're about to find out, the quotation of a specific Old Testament verse, suddenly it's not so clear. Because when you look back at where this language is coming from, it doesn't sound quite as eternal torment friendly as um, seems to be the case. So what we end up with here is an example where um, we have the Old Testament being quoted. And that uh, passage is Isaiah 66. And um, before I continue, it looks like just got a message from Nick here. Uh, um, I don't know if he is Um, coming. I'm I'm still here, Joey. Okay, perfect. I had something uh, come up, so I can only probably stay for a few minutes. Gotcha. Okay, no problem. I just wanted to kind of... uh, Make sure we got we got the most out of you we could before you had to go. Nah, for sure. No, nah, it's cool. I, I'll probably leave in about five minutes. I I got to take care of some stuff. Okay. Pastor life. Sure. Okay. So, well, I mentioned you alluded to how the Mark Nine uh, appeals to the Old Testament. You have any uh, thoughts on that you might want to give before you go? Yeah, uh, I'm trying to nine. I think is it nine forty nine? Mark nine forty nine. Uh, yeah. Or at least that's 48, kind of the, yeah. the, that's the that's the big text. Yeah. So okay. yeah, I think forty eight's the big test. Forty nine is the odd one that is appealed to every so often that fire is actually preservative, which almost seems too absurd to even have to deal with. But well, yeah. I'll deal with that real quick because fire salt <laughs> is something that doesn't purify. It's something that basically means things can't grow again. I mean, you sprinkle salt on a lawn or in the dirt, uh, nothing's growing there. So it's 
yes, being sprinkled with fire is, is not necessarily a great thing sometimes. Um, or so where the war and so the question is uh, in Mark nine forty eight, um, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. Which of course my first thought is, woe to you who takes that literally. Uh, it is better for you to, to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into Gehenna, or I believe it, yeah, it's Gehenna, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, in verse 48. So the, my first um, thought is, looking up where this language comes from, uh, is this, is Mark basically, or rather I should say, is Jesus taking something that has never been said before and making something up? Or is he drawing on anything? And so uh, the intertext here, or rather the almost direct citation, is from Isaiah 66, uh, 20, 22 through 24. And I'll, I'll read it. I'm reading from the, the uh, well, I'm not going to read from that version because I don't like that version. I'll read from, I'll read from the NRSV because I think that's the most helpful translation that requires the least amount of me going, I don't like that. So here we go. Uh, and this start in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will remain, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of the people that have rebelled against me. For the worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched or stopped, and it shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so... Uh, what Mark is drawing, or what Jesus is alluding to when he says the where their worm never dies and the fire is not quenched or stopped, it's an unstoppable fire, it, it can't be stopped, is from the context of, we might say, violent warfare. So in, uh, in the same chapter of Isaiah 66, uh, for, verse 15 says, For the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to pay back his anger and fury and his rebuke and flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord execute judgment, and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain or killed by the Lord shall be many. And so what we have here, Jesus is alluding to the Isianic text of the vision of a cosmos at war where God finally ends all of conflict by destroying it, by removing it from all of creation. And the closest thing I think we have in the New Testament to this in terms of a narrative summary is 1 Corinthians 15, but here, uh, the context of the worm shall not die or shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched or stopped is in the context of dead bodies. And last I checked, dead bodies can't feel anything unless you assume that dead bodies can feel things. And so what Mark is drawing on is warfare language from the Old Testament about the remnants of those who rebelled against God. And basically, God's response is a final and cataclysmic, well, annihilation of all evil things. And the closest parallel, I think, to this is 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll, I'll briefly summarize it because I have to go pretty quick, is in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, or rather, I'll start with verse 22, For as all, it, all die in Adam, so too all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, so that's sequence one, then those that is then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, or the telos, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so what we have 
here in Mark's gospel is not the language of an intertext of torment. That is, Mark is not alluding to a text where uh, torment or pain or agony is in view. It is the, we might say, the smoking remains of a battlefield. And at the end of it, you just kind of go, I, if, if this text were about, for example, a fire that causes agony forever and ever, which I think a Jew could say in that context, I mean, Jewish people or Jewish theologians during this time did say stuff like that. They had no problem with that. Then, yes, we, the, the appeal to Mark 949 and the intertext or the textual, um, the echo would be justified. But for me, I look at this and go, this is warfare language, not torment language. And at the end of it, I just kind of go, there's no reason to take, basically the context is clear. Jesus is not changing something, because if he wanted to change its meaning, he would say, for the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, and they will be in pain forever and ever and ever. When Jesus doesn't explain his intertext or his citation of an Old Testament text, it probably means he's drawing on well, I, I use the analogy this way. There is a flowing stream of water. It's just a river of water, and you're sitting beside it. It's a nice day. It's a hot day, and you need a drink. And what you do is you take a big old ladle, and you dunk it into the water, and you pull a ladle full of water out, and you pull it across. You know, you're using your left hand, so you pull it across to your right and fill up a cup in your left. What we have here in Mark's gospel is the cup. And if you follow what has fallen on the ground back to the stream, the stream is the Old Testament. And the whole point is not that what is in the cup is changed, because Jesus rarely ever changes the Old Testament. Uh, I don't think he ever technically does. But what you have is Jesus takes the cup and looks at it and goes, do you know what this is from? And we all turn and look at the river, and the river is the Old Testament. And you go, Jesus is drawing from all of this, and he's not changing any of it. And so the appeal to progressive revelation is great. We all believe in progressive revelation. The question is, does Jesus change what the Old Testament says? And I see no indication that he does. In fact, I think Jesus 99% of the time just straight up affirms it. And the few instances where he changes it, he goes, you don't understand the spirit of the law and basically forces them to, you know, figure out what, or basically just tells them you're just misunderstanding scripture, not that scripture is wrong. And so, for me, I, I look at the, the Markan text and the Isaiah text as proving the doctrine of conditional immortality or annihilationism, and frankly, I see no reason why this text affirms anything but the, that, that viewpoint. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, Nick, before you leave, do you want to uh, just let everyone know where they can contact you, where they can find you and your, podca and your podcast? Oh, sure. Um and since this is a, a podcast about uh, media and stuff like that, my favorite uh, animated TV show of all time is, oh gosh, is basically The Boondocks. I think The Boondocks is my favorite animated TV show. It's an animated uh, comedy. My favorite film of all time, if I'm really forced to reduce it to one, would have to be Sin City. I can't, I, I just love the movie to death. It's the movie that made me want to be a film major and a screenwriter in undergrad. And all that sort of stuff. So those are my two favorite basic films and TV shows. I'm trying to watch Friends right now on Netflix, and it is kind of painful, but I commit myself to a show, and I have to see it through. <laughs> um, but for those that are interested, uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Nick Quint. That's N-I-C-K. 
Q-U-I-E-N-T. Um, I tweet every so often about random things like and post lots of cat pictures and mildly snarky theology comments. Uh, the two podcasts I am involved with, I'm involved one with my wife in a podcast called The Split Frame of Reference Podcast, where we tackle issues of gender and scripture. And we're about 24, 23 episodes into that. And I also co-host the Synergist podcast, uh, spelled the Sinner way, so Sinner as in the thing we are before we found Jesus and sometimes after Jesus podcast, and where we talk about things from a more, we might say, Arminian slash Wesleyan perspective, although we don't limit ourselves to that, and basically try to do a theological discipleship and education for people that have never really done a lot. And I'm also the associate pastor at the First Baptist Church of Redlands, which is about an hour east of Los Angeles, the city. And yeah, so if people are interested, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, I don't do much on Instagram, so I'm not going to really tell anyone on Instagram because that's kind of lame. And yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. I'm also married to my wonderful wife, Allison, and my stray cat that we had, or I'm not married to the stray cat, that'd be weird. Uh, I also have... I also have a. We also picked up a stray cat named Barkley, whom we've uh, we've had here for about almost a year, and he's turned into a regular, wonderful house cat. So, that's me in a nutshell. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for the invite. Uh, it's been a pleasure, uh, Joey. I know you can handle this because you're basically the most awesome person I know. So, have a good one. It was great to talk to you, of course, again. And thank you, uh, Michelle and Dina, for having me on. Uh, I will talk to you all later. All right. Thanks, Nick. All right, Joe. You're still here, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay, great. See, now I could go on record as saying, you're my favorite millennial. So, (laughs) (laughs) no, because everything you reference on Facebook and everything else is stuff from my, you know, teenage years mostly. So that's awesome too <laughs> so yeah, you didn't get to bef- um, before tell us how you uh, yeah, yeah we, had, we had Nick go into how he um, came to conditionalism okay, would you yes. like to give us a little bit of a background sure no problem uh, mine, mine's probably not as, uh, as multi-parted basically um, although it's funny um, I, I thought of this a little bit when we talked about the death stuff Um, I had actually been, so I became a Christian when I was 18 and, um, I had been kind of exposed to the idea of annihilationism before that. Um, cause when I go online late at night, weird things happen and the weird things usually involve theology. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I found, I stumbled upon a seventh day Adventist site and they talked about annihilation at the time i wasn't a christian and i knew very little about the bible or christian theology other than what was on the simpsons um <laughs> so yeah that's that's where most of us get it and uh, so i didn't think too much of it at the time and i went back uh, so i became a christian accepted the uh, traditional view by default as most christians do um and you know i saw the passage in the bible it said you know the unquenchable fire and everything i'm like oh okay that must mean eternal torment and uh, one day uh kind of out of a morbid curiosity i decided to go back to that website kind of look at um you know what they had because i remember i remember thinking oh i think it was just a bunch of old testament stuff that wasn't relevant and i actually looked and i'm like oh they're actually making a lot of good points about the relevant new testament passages and um 
you know, they, 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 they didn't have everything I needed. Um, but that kind of got me, that was when I first was like, I think there's really some to this. And I ended up going back and forth, um, in part because of a few things they didn't, um, really address. And finally, um, it was revelation 2010. That was kind of the last sticking point. Cause for me, what this website had done, uh, it's called healthtruth.com. That's the name of the website. It's seventh day Adventist. So obviously I'm, I'm not a fan of all the stuff that's seventh day Adventist specific, but I well, mean, like they the did good work. Bachelor uh, stuff, right? What's that? Like with <laughs> Doug Bachelor and all that. The bachelor? Doug Bachelor. Doug. The, the TV show? No, Doug Batch. He's, he's, um... I think he's, like, uh, with Amazing Facts and all that. Oh, is that, like, a YouTube personality or something? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm aware of this figure. Okay. That's interesting. I think, um, you do, that does remind me of someone I saw on YouTube, a Seventh-day Adventist who talks about hell. He has, like, 10 million views. It's... Kind of kind of puts rethinking hell into perspective with our you know thousands of views, but that's all good. Um, all that to say is with this, um, you know, this kind of got me thinking. Oh, they actually had they had a lot of good um, responses to the traditionalist claims, like because you know we talked about like you know the the death language in the Bible and stuff that sounds you know like what we believe. And I mean, at the time it was more like I kind of knew about that. And in fact, even before I was a Christian, I always kind of wondered like. You know, like the Catholics refer to the seven deadly sins, and I'm like, well, don't they believe that no one dies, really? So they call deadly going to hell? Like, as a non-Christian, those things were weird to me. And so what really got me is when I started hearing better and better explanations for the passages used by traditionalists, because I'm reading these, I'm like, once that's taken care of, it's kind of like, okay, you have a lot of passages in the Bible that maybe aren't super emphatic, but sound very much like annihilation. And then more and more of these passages that are supposed to sound like traditionalism, they're at least consistent with annihilation. You know, we talked about several of them, and in some cases, they arguably make a better case. Um, Chris Date, by the way, who if you pay attention to Rethinking Hell, you definitely know the name. Um, it's one thing he makes a big thing about how, for him, one thing that really pushed him over was just how many of these traditionalist proof texts, um, you know, end up being better case for annihilation when you dig into them. And uh, that that's kind of the experience I had. So all that to say is I got morbidly curious, went back to that website, you know, made a good case. And so over some time I was g- going back and forth. Revelation 2010 was the big one that kept me, um, you know, kind of from going over to the edge because I mean, it's, you know, well, I won't go into it here, but if you want to talk about it later, that's good. E- either way, that was the one passage. And I came across somebody who had an article where they gave at least some degree of an explanation as to how that passage is consistent with annihilationism. And that was kind of the big moment where it was like, now I had no reason why I couldn't be an annihilationist. Like, you know, I had some reservations and some concerns, but it was like once it was established in my mind that every biblical argument against it at least had a reasonable explanation then that's really what pushed me over the edge because because the Bible, you know, it's full of it's full of death and life language. You know, these traditionalist proof texts are a minority. And um, you know, the, the main flow of scripture is death and destruction and fire consuming things. And so that that was the big thing. Once I had all that out of my way, that's what nailed me down as a conditionalist. And 
I had a lot of traditionalist friends, so I started like trying to write down like you know um, re- rebuttals to the arguments for annihilate against annihilationism, and um, I got so used into that. And then a couple of years later, rethinking hell became a thing, and they uh, you know contacted me. You know, Peter Grice did the founder. You know, kind of early on, and that's kind of how all of us got connected here. You know, Nick got pulled into, and um, that's kind of my story there. Well, now you've got me curious. What did the article say about uh, Revelation uh, 2010? Because that's actually uh, before Nick had to go. I was going to try and bring that one up. So now that you've introduced it, what did that article say? Yes, no problem. So Revelation 2010, I would argue, is the most difficult passage for annihilationists. I don't think it's insurmountable because I'm an annihilationist. (laughs) But um, it's, and I do think there's, when you really dig in deep, it becomes at least reasonable that the passage doesn't mean traditionalism, the traditional okay. view. Like like Nick said, that's just the eternal torment view. Uh, we call it traditionalism just because it's the dominant view. Lots of traditionalists nowadays use that language too. All that to say is, so this passage, it's in the book of Revelation. And um, we have, it's it, it, you know, it's towards the end. It's the towards the end of, verse, of chapter 20. And it basically, well, let me pull up the, precise wording here uh so in this passage we've gone through all the different earthly stuff that's happened um we have you know we've gone past armageddon and all that stuff and of course different people are gonna have different views about all these things mean um which you know is fine (laughs) because revelation is a very complex book given its genre and that's going to come into play when I talk about Revelation 2010 as well. But um, the passage has three interesting figures. It involves, uh, it brings in the devil, you know, kind of important to this story. Right. And two figures, the name the beast and the false prophet. Now, the beast and the false prophet, they come up early in Revelation. Um, and there's a, there's they're mentioned in several different chapters beforehand. Um, and, you know, the beast... Sometimes the beast is believed to be this person who's also called the Antichrist. There's other beliefs about the beast. And the false prophet is this figure who's somewhat even more cryptic cryptic and not really elaborated upon. But this figure helps the beast do all of his evil, beastly things, taking over in the narrative, anyway, the world and so forth. So what happens is, in chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. uh, Specifically the lake of burning sulfur which in chapter 19 kind of just appears out of nowhere. Um, just mentions there's this like, they're thrown in the lake of fire, just says, basically. And then in chapter 20, we have this verse. And it says, And the devil who deceived them, them being people he tried to lead in an uprising against God, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you can see why that would be a passage that would have given me a lot of trouble. Because right. it literally says, speaks of these beings and says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Like, it's the only passage in the Bible that actually spells out, at least at face value, eternal torment. Um, no other traditionalist proof text actually does that. You'll right. notice in every case, they never, but this one just explicitly says it, you know, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it's, at least based in the English, it seems pretty clear-cut as to what's happening. What got me first in this article was the author. And the author was, by the way, Glenn Peoples, who 
He's uh, he's something of a lay theologian. I mean, he's very trained and learned, but he uh, lives down in New Zealand. He has a blog. He writes for Rethinking Hell occasionally. And so Dr. Peoples here, he had written an article, and just part of the article was talking about Revelation 2010, specifically about the beast and the false prophet. So we see in this narrative of Revelation that these two creatures, and they're described elsewhere as these sort of scary monster creatures, basically, they're thrown into this lake of fire, the devil's thrown into the lake of fire, it says they're going to be tormented forever and ever in this lake of fire. And what Glenn pointed out is that there's really strong reasons to believe in the Bible that the beast and the false prophet aren't even individual people to begin with. Um, that, that a lot of interpretations based on the descriptions of them in Revelation and their connections to Daniel 7. Um, see, I will say, with Revelation, you really get into the weeds here because um, whereas Mark 9, for example, was quoting one specific passage, and, I mean, you, you heard how much Nick had to say about that. With yeah. Revelation, you're basically appealing to points and images from various books in the, New, in the Old Testament, some of which has a lot of background. So to keep it short, the beast in Revelation... He's basically described in previous chapters as this sort of mix of the four beasts in Daniel. These four beasts in Daniel represented four different kingdoms. This beast is described, he's, this beast is kind of described in places in part as an individual and in other parts as a kingdom. All that to say is because of that, there's reason to think the beast is a kingdom. Um, and different <laughs> views of Revelation will have ideas specifically about what kingdom. And like I say, it really gets in the weeds here. But the point Glenn made is, look, it's a kingdom. You can't torment a kingdom. This is a corporate entity. And what you basically have is a passage in the single most symbolic and imagery-filled book in the entire Bible, a book where you have dragons, where you have lambs representing Jesus, where you have you know, a woman who's literally in the sun and, you know, water... Uh, the, the 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 dragon who represents the devil tries to drown her twelve star children, which some think represents Israel, some thinks represent the disciples, some think the woman's Israel, some think she's Mary. You have all these weird things. So it's I mean, if you've ever read Book of Revelation in full, it is right. very bizarre. And you have all the supernatural occurrences. You have a, this harlot who rides on the back of this beast, and she represents a city. It doesn't say what the city is, but it describes it and gives hints. I think it's Jerusalem. I think uh, headed before eighty seventy. Others disagree. That's okay. But this woman represents a city, and then the beast eats her. Um, there's so much of this bizarre stuff, and that's the context that Revelation is in. So he basically points out, you know, you have this clearly symbolic context, not the least of which is you're throwing these different things into a lake of burning sulfur and you know in real life it's hard to kind of explain how you could torment something that's not a person like okay. the beast being a kingdom and then you just look even further in the passage like in verse 14 death you know death this abstract concept is shown as being a tangible creature thrown into the same lake of fire you know, how, how do you burn death? How does death torment it in a lake of fire? That doesn't, these things don't make sense. This is clearly symbolic of something. And kind of, he just kind of pointed out, it's like, well, if this is all symbolic of something and you have a devil thrown in, you have a kingdom thrown in, 
false prophets not really defined, but something related to the kingdom. You have abstract entities like death. You have Hades thrown in and people. The only thing that this could represent in real life that makes sense applied to all of those is annihilation because you can destroy abstract entities. You can destroy kingdoms. You can destroy people. You can't torment death and fire. You certainly, you know, you can't torment a, a kingdom. Like some will argue you can torment all the people, but that isn't how this kind of imagery normally works. Right. So all the, yeah. So basically he's like, look, the beast is a corporate entity. It's a kingdom. This isn't a really symbolic, you know, work of scripture death makes it make even less sense so then it's like okay you know if you look closer the traditionalist doesn't have a very good thing you're going here either because it's so complex you have to make every piece make sense and while it is by no means the most straightforward and face value interpretation to say that this lake of fire is destruction it's something that makes all the pieces make sense and um that was kind of what got me there. And as time has gone on, I've, I've gotten even stronger in that view. I've pointed out things like we as conditionalists have to explain by one why one single passage in the entire Bible in the most imagery laden symbolic passage speaks of says things will be tormented forever and ever in one place. You know, the traditionalist has to explain why throughout the Bible in straightforward, non symbolic teaching, you know, it said that there's death and life. It said that the wicked are destroyed. The wicked are described in explanations of things as being burned up to ash. Uh, you know, you have Malachi 4. Like, there's so many times where, taking at face value, the Bible describes annihilation. And every single time, the traditionalist has to explain why every single one of those is symbolic of eternal torment. I have to describe by one passage in a very symbolic passage is symbolic of annihilation. Right, right. I mean, so the basic rationale for why <coughs> traditionalists will believe what they, what traditionalists believe is, well, because that's the way it's always been taught. Mm -hmm. Traditionally. Right. So, and so it's kind of just grandfathered in and becomes the default view, and it's mm -hmm. also the popular culture view of hell, which is why we just kind of assume that's what the Bible teaches. Absolutely. Now, I will say, there's a lot of instances now, increasingly the last hundred years especially. So, Dino, you had mentioned how um, you had been ex uh, exposed to the view of hell as this just like cold separation from God, not not actual fire and torture and everything. Like, Right. That view is really novel historically. I mean, you go back, and I wrote a three-part article at Rethink Hell about this. Basically, historically, if the people who believed in eternal conscious hell at all pretty much always believed... I mean, well, I'm sure there's some exception in there, but I mean, the, the mass view of every like respected theologian as was always, you know, almost always literal fire. Um, it was always God's active wrath torture you know all these horrifying things you go back to you know like uh and i don't just mean like dante everyone wants to throw dante under the bus like yeah dante made up things it was a fictional writing but he was really just reflecting on what the tradition what the view in the church was at the time and and honestly was a lot like before and well after in fact dante's inferno with the whole thing about people you know being tortured based on their past sins that wasn't original with him you know you have a I mean, I don't know, 
I'm skeptical to say whether someone who would make up a fake vision is actually a Christian. But, I mean, you had that idea going back to, like, the third century, at least, with the Apocalypse of Peter. You had, er, you know, fairly early church fathers. Granted, there are early church fathers who are annihilationists, which, I mean, so much of the stuff you can find on Rethinking Hell, I definitely recommend that website, not just because I contribute to it. But um, <laughs> the, the, all the early church fathers who believed in eternal torment, they believed in eternal torment. You know, they would talk about, you know, people being roasted alive and their their skin being grown back so they can be roasted alive again and all these horrible things. And that sound like the stuff that, you know, a lot of traditionalists today, at least kind of in the West, kind of want to put under the rug. And they actually will actively dismiss and say, oh, hell's not a medieval torture chamber. But historically, hell really was like a you know, medieval torture chamber. And so it's it's funny to me how the so many hold to the traditional view because of the history, but a lot of them don't a- actually believe the historic view to begin with. Right. And I find it odd that there is a lot of kickback from traditionalists to you know a lot of kickback at conditionalists mm-hmm. about this view. Yet there doesn't seem to be as much animosity toward the traditionalist view A, meaning fire, hellfire, torment, fire and brimstone, you know, sinners in the hand of an angry God type stuff. And the traditionalist B, you know, you're separated into God's dank dungeon. There doesn't seem to be that animosity between those two as much. I agree, and it is strange. I mean, you would expect a lot more pushback. There has been in the past. Um, Like, you see, like, in the 1800s, for example, Charles Spurgeon, like, someone mentioned the idea of metaphorical fire to him, and uh, I don't know the exact sermon, although, again, I have a three-part article of Rethinking Hell, so if you want specifics, check us out there. It's free. It's a free website, so, obviously. But um, Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon, he basically (laughs) points out the idea of... um, metaphorical fire you're the fire not being literal and he basically just laughs it off he's like that's idiotic he's like if you know if it's metaphorical who cares you know if you want to punch me in the face metaphorically go ahead i don't mind you know because he, he basically laughs at the idea and granted i mean i think there's good evidence calvin believed in some metaphorical fire but he was still very much yeah it's metaphorical for god's rage who will tear you apart limb from limb without killing you but um yeah, I mean, he, he as, as hell got softer, there was pushback from people like him. A.W. Pink, who was a reformed author who wrote about hell, he basically was like, people who don't think it's literal fire, I'm not sure they're actually saved. You know, uh, there was more in the past. Nowadays, I think it's just become so common that um, for whatever the motivations are, and the motivations probably vary, it's just they don't seem to see nearly as big of a difference there. And I'm just like, it is really different. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I had, going back to my crosswalk, I was in a discussion the other day and actually had somebody tell me, don't make punishment lighter than what the Bible says. And I basically responded with, I'm not making the eternal punishment lighter than the Bible says. Uh, I said, you're adding to what it says. <laughs> I'm calling it death. And that's what it says. But I was being accused of making the punishment lighter than what the Bible says. Mm. And 
one of the other things that I asked him, I had said it, I said it's so confounding as to why so many insist the punishment has to be more than is ever stated. Why? Does it make the reward of the saved sweeter? Some think that. I don't know if the average lay Christian now does, but some will say that. Yeah, it, it just, it, it boggles the mind sometimes. Yeah. And I wanted to mention it, you know, earlier when I started making my, um, I guess if you want to call it a conversion or whatever, mm-hmm. from uh, ECT or Eternal Torment to Conditional Immortality, it just opened the Bible up for me so much. Just things that didn't make sense before now made sense. Mm-hmm. And it, I can't read, I read the Bible now and I try and think about how I would have seen that before or I try, you know, I see how other people talk about it and it's very, I find it very hard now to understand how they can even think that way and I've got to remember to myself, I used to think that way. I feel you there. I used to hold that same view. But now it just seems so foreign to me. (laughs) No, I mean, exactly. That's I always try to keep myself in their mindset, too, because, you know, part of it is, too, is, you're, is you become an annihilationist and you stay one for longer and longer, you know, you can sometimes forget that things like that, like how I'm so used now to reading the Bible and just pretty much always, you know, there's a couple metaphorical uses that don't pertain to eternal destiny, but pretty much I'm used to taking for granted that life means life and death means death. Um, or as I like to explain, death means like a corpse, you know, um, mm-hmm. being turned into a corpse, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, I have to explain that. I know I have to explain that because when you're a traditionalist, you don't you don't think that way. You're so used to life and death not automatically meaning um, what a lot of traditionalists would call non-existence that you know you have to. You know, you have to remember that that's how traditionalists think, and that I used to think in those same terms. Even when I became a conditionalist, I was much less emphatic about life and death than I am now, just because at the time I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, we can't take for granted that that's what those words mean, even though, I mean, we can't assume per se, but that's kind of what the words usually mean. So um, that's the thing. And, and it, it is kind of, in some sense, it can be frustrating because we're so often as conditionalists, you know, like you mentioned before, in one of those conversations you have, like we're talking about it as death. We're we're so often as accused as being the crazy ones because what we think of as death is what death normally means. Like they're the ones who have to come up with this unusual Bible-only definition of death and life, and we're somehow treated as the crazy ones because. Who? What kind of crazy person would think a word has a meaning that's similar to its normal meaning? <laughs> right? right. Exactly. Yeah. It was hey, one of the other conversations that I had. Somebody had brought up the Isaiah sixty six twenty four, and you know she was giving that as how people are um, alive in hell. And I just simply asked her the question, what is a corpse? Corpse. What is is a carcass? What state is a carcass in? 
And she gave me some other things, but basically the end of her next comment was, I'm done discussing this with you. Yeah, it's okay. Like, yeah, what? This is nuts. Yeah. You to disagree. <laughs> and it does, like you said, it does get very frustrating sometimes. And I, I've turned to Dino before and I'm like, am I being, is there something? Sometimes I feel like there's I've got to be wrong because so many people are disagreeing with me or, or trying to, you know, saying all these different things. I'm like, okay, it's got to be me. Maybe I am wrong. I, I mean, I totally get that. There's, I mean, that's why for me, especially there seems to be, especially in the last couple of years of me, the sort of, I mean, I'm not being over-spiritualized, like, you know, conviction upon my heart, but this sort of idea that, we need to have this element of, oh, I don't even know how to say the word, pedagogy, pedagogy, whatever, that word, of kind of having to not just have the biblical arguments, you know, prepared nicely like a lawyer, because Edward Fudge did that 30 years ago um, in the book The Fire That Consumes, but also just kind of be able to think through why other people would think differently, think through why we can relate to that, and kind of appeal to that as well. Um, you know, to plug once again my favorite hell website, uh, Ed Reed Thinking Hell, you know, one of the articles I have is just simply about how um, if you stop and think about it, every great theologian that you can think of, you disagree with them on. And they disagree with each other on things, you know, and major things like it's to some extent even how exactly we go about salvation. Right. You know, and other major doctrines, baptism, um, that what you know, and workspace salvation, non-workspace um, predestination. There's all these major doctrines, some of which are more substantial than hell. Like I think this is a major doctrine, but it's not as key as, for example, whether you need to be baptized to be saved or not. I think that's a bigger issue, and. You you line up all the great theologians. You do, you necessarily disagree with some of them, and they necessarily disagree with each other. And so that was kind of one of those things for me when I realized that I'm just like, you know, it becomes harder and harder to sort of cling <laughs> to things based on the idea of how can I be right and they be wrong when, you know, you, you do think that some of them are wrong. If you're a Baptist of any sort, you know, you believe in credo baptism. You think that John Calvin and Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and all of them were wrong about baptism. And, you know, if you're more reformed and you're into infant baptism, well, you think that Charles Spurgeon was wrong. You think uh, probably any number of major Baptists today that are wrong. William Carey, the great um, missionary, you think he's wrong. Arguably, some of the earliest church fathers you think were wrong because you disagree with them like you can't there's no way you can agree with everybody you're going to have to look at some really great learned men of the faith and women too and point to them and say you were wrong and i was right you know and as presumptuous as that says it's logically necessary for whatever your view is so sometimes having to frame things like that can be important just to get people to realize christianity's messy and sometimes things that seem like that just shouldn't happen necessarily happen like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you brought up Edward Fudge. And I'd be remiss if we did not speak about Edward Fudge because we are 
primarily an entertainment podcast um, that delves into being decent to each other and everything else. And there is a film about Edward Fudge, mm-hmm. who is who is one of one of the strongest uh, voices of conditional immortality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a film that's on Amazon Prime called Hell and Mr. Fudge. Um, was it uh, Mackenzie Aston played Edward Fudge? For those of us older people, he was on the later seasons of Facts of Life. Um, and he was in the Garbage Pail Kids movie. And he is the brother of Samwise Gamgee. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of the things that we brought up as far as doctrine, um, especially toward the end with uh, Revelation 20, he, he mentions in the in the movie, as far as the, the, you know, the beast, in, you know, devil beast and the false prophet. Mm-hmm. You know, being institutions, you know, not being uh, people and stuff. And, and that film goes into his, con- uh, I don't want to say conversion, but his transition from believing in the traditional view of hell into conditional immortality. Mm-hmm. But what I love about the movie is it doesn't just regurgitate, you know, what we went, what we've been talking about for this time, but it mm-hmm. deals with, you know, it starts off with him being a proponent of, of not, not believing that one denomination has the, uh, Walk on faith. Definitely, you know, that that salvation is not just for the Church of God or for the Methodists or for the Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. You know that that faith itself was, you know, God's grace is open to all who believe. You know, and then went into you know how he got kicked back from the church for believing something as. Simple as well, yeah. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, you know. Salvation is for anyone who believes. You know, he got kicked back for something as seemingly obvious as that. Mm-hmm. And then went further because, you know, God forbid, he asked a a black man to say a prayer at his church. You know, got you know. He got not only kicked back from that, but got removed as the pastor for being so bold to kick against the goads in something as civil as that. Mm-hmm. You know, and no. the more he got kicked back, you know, he he just kept going forward in faith and. Just kept pursuing what, you know, what he felt the Bible was saying was right, not what other people were saying was right. No, exactly, and which is a great movie, by the way. I do recommend it for uh, 
those who are interested in theological matters. And I mean, it, it's a good movie. And uh, I was actually quite thrilled when I when I saw the uh, the casting because I I watched the Facts of Life quite a bit um, when I was younger. Uh, I, I wasn't around during the original run. Um, but it was on Nick and Night a lot, which I will say, uh, having seen it now, like over a decade later, and just I, I never, I didn't realize at the time how dated that show was. Even then, like it is so eighties. Yeah. <laughs> like I just see them walking around in their normal everyday clothes. I'm like, this is this is so eighties. How did I miss that when I was younger? It, yeah. Anyway, it was fun to see. Uh, what's the kid's name? Andy. Yes. It was yes. fun to see Andy from the Facts of Life <laughs> in uh, a grown up role like that, and. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as your deeper point, absolutely. I mean, that's the the movie captures so much of that, and I mean, it's based on Edward Fudge's life. It's you know pretty, you know, some names are changed and stuff, but it's pretty spot on to what actually happened. And you know, it's uh, I, I did get to meet him while he was still with us, and uh, I mean, he's pretty great. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll have lots of great times with him in the future when we're all together again. Yeah, well, fantastic. Okay, and um. I think I think we're about. Yeah, I think I'm about ready to tap. I out. think we about. That's <laughs> good. Um, I mean, it's a nice brief podcast. It's only been like two hours, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Joey, I appreciate you sitting with us and, and taking your time out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, this was. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, where can people uh, find you? Or uh, you said rethinking hell that you, you know you've written articles and you've. You've been on many of their podcasts. and Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's kind of a lot of my work out in the public since I'm an accountant, so I'm not like, you know, right. a theologian by trade. So a lot of the, you know, theology of my spare time, a lot of it's, you know, through the Rethinking Hell, the website, uh, some of the podcast episodes. Um, I, I'm on Twitter occasionally. I'm very inconsistent, so I kind of do like bursts you know I'll, I'll go months with nothing and then post a bunch of stuff um you can find me there uh, my ha- my handle is metal sandman so just m-e-t-a-l-s-a-n-d man so metal sandman 999 you know oh. and uh you know i post some stuff there sometimes reposting and rethinking hell sometimes my own stuff you know just uh it's a place there i i do have a blog and i'm even more inconsistent there i think i've Last couple of years, I've posted just two times a year, basically. Um, hey, you're better than I am. I've got my blog, and I haven't posted in three years. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so you have to. Well, now you have to, so you can catch up with me. You know, uh, exactly. You know, I haven't done anything for 2019, so uh, you can beat me there. Uh, so I, even the link for it, it's don't even have on hand. But um, I, I do have a I do have a website which I don't really uh, really uh, update much either. But it does have my ebook on hell, which I wrote. It's free. It's a PDF. Um, you can find it there. Uh, let's see. I want to make sure I have the proper URL here, so I don't mislead anybody. But yes, um, I do have my website as well, which has the blog hooked up to there you can just go to uh www.3ringbinder.org no dashes or anything just the let the number three ringbinder.org or you just or you can just google joseph deer three ring binder it's pretty much the only one you'll find so yeah that's where i have that stuff um you know i am in the facebook the hell rethinking hell facebook group we have a facebook group um and it's gotten a lot more active lately with a lot more people. So uh, you can see me there as well. 
Um, and I'm trying to get more into going beyond just the hell stuff, just because, uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't want to say I love the hell stuff because that sounds terrible, but it is very <laughs> exactly. But it's you know I, th- I think it is important. You know it's important for a number of reasons, and it's you know work worthwhile doing. But uh, you know you can also find me you know at my website again. Um, you know read a few other things, see my blog. My blog doesn't talk about hell much ever since I joined Rethinking Hell. So if you want a break from hell, check it out. A lot of theology, occasional politics. Um, and of course, you know, rethinking hell since this is hell. Um, yeah, well, and I, I will, I do intend to be at this year's conference. So if anyone's listening and is really into this and you want to make it airway out to Enid, Oklahoma, we have a conference going on too. Um, just check out the rethinking hell website for details there. I'll be there. Okay. All wonderful. Right. And I'll post links, uh, in the show notes and. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate it, Joey. Thank you much, my man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Thank All right. You. Thank you. Right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. That was that. Um, this is Ha huh Podcast. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify now. We're on... I think just about every podcatcher around. Thank you to Justin from the Far Side of the Network for hooking us up and hosting us as always. And have a great day. Be decent to each other. This has been a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let's see.